Federal employees on the whole weathered the COVID pandemic pretty well, but some did get sick and some did die. Now a Senate measure would bolster safety for when feds return to the office. WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller joins me with more, and they have time to think about this amidst everything else. Boy, there's a lot of stuff going on, and this legislation co-sponsored by two Virginia senators, Mark Warner and Tim Kaine, two Maryland senators, Chris Van Hollen and Ben Cardin, as well as Ohio Sherrod Brown. This would be in honor of a federal worker from Virginia who died of complications of the coronavirus. They believe he was probably exposed to it at work. The legislation would require all federal agencies to establish and put online workplace safety plans after or if this bill is approved. They could include COVID testing, contact tracing, cleaning protocols, distribution of personal protection equipment, all of these things that we've been talking about over the past year. And of course, with the variants, uh, again, continuing to emerge across the country, this is actually a very highly relevant issue here on the Hill. Also, any guidelines related to requiring vaccinations would be included in this legislation. By the way, this comes as the deadline hits for federal agencies to submit their return to office plans to OMB, as you know. But, of course, many of those plans had been submitted a while ago with everybody coming back. That's right, though. Today is the deadline under the latest version of policy here. And that's only the plans. We don't know really when this is all going to happen. But from what I hear, people are thinking in terms of September as the beginning of the rollback of people where L'Enfant Plaza might get crowded again. Right, exactly. And that that trickle is starting, but that, I think, is really when it's going to start to hit as far as all the employees coming back. Okay, and infrastructure seems to be coming to a head, and that would affect a lot of agencies should it happen. And what's what's the latest that's going to happen this week? Well, now we actually have a hard deadline, and this has really caused a ruckus here on Capitol Hill when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer last week laid down the law and said, I want to vote this coming week, this coming Wednesday, on the bipartisan infrastructure plan. This is, of course, the $1 trillion plan that has Republican and Democratic support. But there's been a lot of grumbling from Republican lawmakers after Schumer made that announcement. Uh, They want to make sure that everything is actually pinned down and and in the legislation. Of course, even as we speak, staffers are furiously trying to put this thing together and try to get the actual printed version of legislation. So there's still a lot of ifs and buts about this, uh, what's going to actually happen. And of course, Democrats need those at least 10 votes to get past that 60-vote filibuster threshold to actually get to advance to debate on the bipartisan infrastructure plan. I talked about this with Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who, of course, has been in the middle of all of these talks and asked him if he was concerned that Republicans were going to fall off. He remains optimistic, however. Of course, he's working very closely with a lot of GOP lawmakers on this and thinks it will eventually start moving through. And then at the same time, uh, Schumer has told fellow Democrats that they need to get this $3.5 trillion measure, so-called human infrastructure, basically ready by the middle of this week as well. So a lot of moving parts here on Capitol Hill right now. There's just the physical question of bills that spend four five trillion dollars $5 And let's say they're a page for every $10 million. Who proofreads this stuff and even knows what's in all that? Right. And, you know, only really the staffers that write it up for the lawmakers know exactly what's in each parcel. Uh, There's been some speculation that with all of this money, as you talk about, coming out, this could be literally close to 10,000 pages. I mean, there will be definitely will be thousands and thousands of pages of all of these things that have to go into this. And, of course, on the $3.5 trillion measure, there is so much stuff being stacked into that measure 
picture right now that that's a whole nother uh, series of things that have to get to the, of course, the budget resolution, which will be the first step to getting toward budget reconciliation. And then that's where the Democrats are hoping that they, with only 50 votes and potentially the vote of the vice president, can somehow eke this through even without any Republican support. And with 10,000 pages, somebody could put in on page 4,324 that upon completion of the Missoula Bridge, (laughs) we shall declare Mickey Mouse president of the United States. That could become law and no one would ever know until it's too late. There is no one. I don't think there's anyone that will have actually read the entire legislation (laughs) itself. War and peace seems like a cinch compared to that. (laughs) We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Senate Democrats are also looking at the Postal Service and Van Hollen once again on some of the delivery delays going on. That's a festering problem, too, isn't it? It really is. Uh, Maryland uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen has made no secret of the fact that he's been very critical of the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, and a lot of these reforms that are being pushed through. They had a hearing last week and went over basically a lot of the issues that cropped up during the pandemic and are continuing to this point. And the Inspector General of the Postal Service, Tammy Whitcomb, just said basically there was not enough communication uh, going along with all of these districts across the country. And our area here in the Washington area is among the worst. The Baltimore district actually is the worst for on-time delivery. And the uh, so-called capital district circling around here in the nation's capital is the third worst. And Tammy Whitcomb basically told the panel that what was happening as they sent IG staff to all these districts, they found out that it was totally inconsistent about what they were doing. Some places they were saying, well, we can't do this because of overtime. Others said, no, we're, we're going to go ahead and do it with overtime. Uh, some places, they are just literally leaving the mail on the dock if there's a not enough to fill a truck to go out. And of course, as you know, that's been one of the big issues with DeJoy's reforms is he wants to get everything more ground-based rather than getting it to various points to get on planes, basically arguing that over the long haul, that this will tighten up things for the Postal Service. But c- certainly a lot of concern and a lot of skepticism, frankly, from lawmakers here about what the Postal Service is doing. But it's going to be a long slog, as we know, for any improvements to come with the Postal Service. And I guess the Bed Bath & Beyond lobby must be upset about (laughs) slow delivery, too. Right, exactly. I mean, a lot of these deliveries, there there was some testimony that in some cases, it wasn't just a matter of a few days or weeks, but uh, in some cases, people said that they waited months uh, to find out what happened. And of course, there's very little actual personal responsibility taken for a lot of these things. And and of course, it's not just late pieces of marketing mail or anything like that. As you know, they've pointed out, uh, various people have pointed out that sometimes people are waiting for vital medicine that they need or a check that they were hoping to get from a federal agency. And so this has had a lot of repercussions. And members of Congress say consistently, this is the one area where they get the most complaints from their constituents. Yeah, I remember as a kid, sometimes a story would pop up that a letter mailed before World War II would arrive, you know, sometime in the 1960s. And while we have you, give us the situation of security, physical security, on Capitol Hill that seems to be finally seeing the light of day. It is. Finally, there is no more security fencing around the Capitol that came down, and uh, it's really been quite a breath of fresh air around here. You can tell the lawmakers are really glad to see that this has happened, both from the Republican and the Democratic side. It doesn't 
doesn't matter. They really all wanted it to come down. Uh, nice to see as I come into work every day, uh, just the things that you used to take for granted all the time. People jogging, people running uh, with their pets, being on bicycles. So that's the good news on the uh, negative side. Right now, there is a divide over security supplemental measure for Capitol Police and the National Guard, who, of course, incurred a lot of extra funding during the January 6th insurrection and after the insurrection. Uh, And right now, basically, Republicans only want to pay for the Capitol Police extra funding and the National Guard funding. There's a supplemental measure that uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy wants to get through that would cover a lot of other things. So this divide right now, as we are here in the middle of the summer, really threatens, uh, according to the National Guard, some of the training that could be done next month uh, and, and in the coming months. So that's on the negative side. But on the positive side, I will say there are a lot more smiles uh, around the uh, Capitol grounds here as people just make their way into the U.S. Capitol. Unfortunately for the public, the Capitol will remain closed. And that, of course, goes back to the pandemic. The uh, Capitol now closed for close to 16 months. That's the longest the U.S. Capitol has ever been closed off to the public. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. 
but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect 
perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.